It's always good to sing the doxology after those hard scriptures. Just kind of gives you that warm, fuzzy feeling, doesn't it, Augie? Yeah, that's right. It's going to be okay. We have that nervous laughter when we read scriptures like this in Luke chapter 16 because it kind of makes us go, what is going on here? What, what does this parable mean? Jesus, do, do we miss something in the translation here? This past week, I filled out a recommendation letter for one of our um, volunteers in our youth ministry, a young man who uh, has gone to school here at Texas Tech, and he is applying to the United States Air Force Pararescue Team. They jump out of planes, they go into water, they, they get people out of tough situations. Uh, they're often armed when they do it. And uh, he sent me a link showing the video of this training. And in the training, uh, it, it's, it's a, I don't know, you could kind of call it a recruiting video. Usually when there's a recruiting video, it, it says, hey, you need to come and be a part of our team. Come and be a part of our group. Come and be a part of our club. Come buy something for me. That's what, when I think of recruiting, that's what I think of. But here's what they, they pretty much say, this is really going to be hard. And only 25% of you will make it. 75% of you will fail. So if you're not serious about this, just don't even bother applying and wasting our time. And then they proceed to show about four minutes of video of these men in training. And they have them and uh, there's nothing about it that, that is... Um, abusive or anything, but it's uh, like they've got their hands to hide behind their back and they're having to stay underwater for so long. And uh, they have these, the, the trainers are sitting there and they're, they're, they're telling them, hey, you got to get up, get up, get up, get up. And it creates a kind of this dual sense. Uh, the first sense I think of is I'm glad I'm not applying for that. That's my first thought that I thought of. But then I had this second sense of uh, thinking about uh, my friend, his name's Alberto. Um, he's probably upstairs right now helping out with the youth. And, I, and it just, I think, I thought, wow, what, what an honorable thing to do. To, to give that much of your life, that much of your comfort. I mean, you know, when you're underwater and you're not breathing and, and they say, yeah, you can last 60 seconds longer than you think you can underwater. I mean, you know, after about 30 seconds, I'm thinking, okay, it's time. For the fact that someone's willing to do that, for the sake of being equipped and prepared to do a great work is honorable, isn't it? So we have this dual thing where it's like, wow, that's hard. And yet, if you ever needed rescued, wouldn't you want someone who's succeeded in that training coming after you? As we go down the road here with Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is headed to Jerusalem from chapter 9 to chapter 21. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and we're just going through the lectionary gospel text, and we're just, we're just taking whatever the lectionary is feeding us and dealing with it. Uh, I did not predetermine today's scripture. And it kind of feels like we're in training a little bit. It feels like, feels like God is, is saying, get up, get up. You can do it. Keep going. Get up. And I think that's because God wants to use the Bible to shape us and to form us into certain kinds of people. And you can never be shaped and formed into something that's worthy 
unless you're willing to endure some kind of discomfort. Think of anything that's noble in your life. Think of anything that's worthy. Even, even learning how to clean your room. From that to some of the most noble, honorable things in the world, it requires discipline. It requires sacrifice. And God is not requiring anything less from us. That this road of being a disciple, which is related to that word discipline, means that we are those who are being disciplined in the way of Jesus. To be disciplined in the way of Jesus means that we read texts like Luke chapter 16 and we just let God work us out. So, sometimes at church you may walk away feeling, yeah, I feel inspired, encouraged, lifted up. Sometimes we have to work a little harder to get to that point. I hope we walk away today feeling like, that was a good workout. That was a good workout. All right? Today's parable about this manager who squandered his owner's property is one of many parables that Jesus tells down the stretch in the Gospel of Luke. If you look and you read from Luke chapter 9 all the way to chapter 20, you'll see that there are multiple times where Jesus stops and tells a parable. And every parable has kind of a general basic pattern. There's an owner of some land or an owner of something. And that owner has a servant. And that owner gives some kind of responsibility to that servant. Hey, I want you to do this. I want you to take these talents and go make more out of them. Or I want you to tend to this garden. Or I want you to take care of this piece of land. And then the owner goes away for some period of time. While the stewards are, are tending to the house or the farm or the garden or whatever it might be. And then after a certain while, there, there is this return of the owner or the owner sends a representative of some sort and the person who's entrusted with what's been given to them has to give an account. Were you faithful with what's been given to you or were you not faithful with what has been entrusted unto you? And then after that, the owner has some kind of verdict or rendering and, and says, here, you get more. Your reward is great. You did well. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Or on the other hand, it's like, nope, I'm taking it away from you. You are not worthy of what was entrusted unto you. We see this six different times down the stretch in the Gospel of Luke. This is one of those times. I think we must see these parables in their more immediate context before we pull it out of Jesus' day and put it into the year 2019. So let's stick with it in its context. Jesus is saying again and again and again, like a boxer who's just continuing to give the jab. Boom, boom, boom. He is saying again and again, Israel, God created you. God made you. God blessed you. He rescued you out of Egypt. He made you into a family. He gave you a law. He sent the prophets to keep you on track. He told you you were to be a blessing to the world. He said, I will bless you so that through you all the world will be blessed. You have been given this great stewardship, this land to farm, this garden to tend to, this fruit to bear. And you have failed. 
you have not done God's will. God's vision for the nation of Israel was that Israel would bless the world. And Israel has, over the centuries, come to a place where they're just kind of clinging on to to dear life. And when you're just kind of clinging on to, to dear life, rather than remembering who you are as God's chosen and beloved people, it's kind of hard to bless people, isn't it? When you're just clinging on to what you have. And so Jesus sees himself as the final person to come for Israel to give an account to. This is it. This is your final test, Israel. And of course, we know the rest of the story that Israel fails the test. And along the way, Jesus talks about the different things that have gotten in the way of Israel's allegiance to God. We've seen in past weeks how people and relationships, even family relationships, sometimes are getting in the way of people's faithfulness to Jesus. He even uses this language of, you will love one and hate the other. Well, Jesus isn't really calling us to hate our family members. This is language of comparing allegiances. To, to love one means you have to choose over one versus the other. That's what that language is all about. We see the same language in this text today, except that Jesus isn't talking about relationships. He is talking about what the Bible calls mammon, which we can translate as wealth or money or possessions or something of the like. That this has become your false God. Man, Jesus talks about money more than just about anything else in the Bible. Don't you wish that he just leave the subject alone? Hey, we're in America. We've got capitalism. It should all balance out. Jesus, just leave us alone. Amen? Amen. No one wants to amen that. It is kind of fascinating, though. This relationship that we have with, with money and the things that money can buy, it really is worth looking at. It is, it's worth examining in our lives. Every single one of us has to continue to look at, is my relationship with wealth or money getting in the way of what God is calling me to be and do in my life? And I think we never can really stop thinking about that. It's fascinating that some of our language about money overlaps with our language about faith. We talk about fiduciary responsibility. Well, that comes from the Latin word fides, which means faith, faithfulness. We talk about um, creditors. Well, that comes from the Latin word credere, which means to believe. It's where we get the word creed or credo. Talk about trust. You know, we have trust funds. There's this sense of belief, credibility, faith, faithfulness, and that language permeates both our financial world as well as our religious world. I think part of the reason is because the two can so easily get confused for one another. I think it's fascinating that in America, most of our currency says... In blank, we trust. What does it say? In God, we trust. 
Next time you pull out a, a bill or, or a coin or whatever, take a look at that. Do we trust in God with our American currency? Do we really? It's a good question, isn't it? It's probably good for that to stay on there to remind us that that's the calling. Every time we pull that out, we should ask ourselves, do I trust in God? Do I trust in Him with this? Money and faith are closely related, and I think that's why Jesus tends to come around to this subject time and time again. You will love one, and you will hate the other. This wasn't included in today's text, but the very next verse is verse 14. It says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all this and they ridiculed him. Lovers of money. Now, the Pharisees, they're always the bad guy because ever since we were in Sunday school, the Pharisees have just been the bad guys. And so in our lives, they've just always been the bad guys. But here's the thing. Pharisees were not those wealthy elites who just looked down on the rest of the world. Pharisees were what you might call today middle-class kind of folk. They, they usually weren't the poorest of the poor, but they weren't the richest of the rich either. And yet, they were lovers of money. Furthermore, Pharisees did what the law required. They tithed of their income. They gave out of their wealth by what standards of today we would call generous giving. Put it on your little tax deduction form at the end of the year, all that stuff. And yet Jesus still says you were lovers of money. I think what all this means is that we can't just give so much and say, okay, I'm exempt, I'm good, I gave the minimum amount, and now I am in God's good graces. It means that this love of money is really a matter of the heart. Because money does at least three things, if not more, for us in our culture. It can get us this sense of security. I have enough, and it makes me secure so that I can live in this life and have the things that I feel like I need to have. Nothing doesn't really sound like anything is really wrong with that, does it? Money can also get us this sense of status and belonging. I have this amount. I can have these things in my life. It makes me feel like I'm important in the world that I live in. Other people look at me and they say, look how important that person is. Money can also bring us great comfort. We can live very comfortably with our money. I don't have to work hard. I don't have to exert myself. Uh, and, and in our world, if, if there is any place of discomfort, someone will invent something to make that discomfort comfortable again, won't we? That's kind of the way our economy's geared. Security, status, and comfortable comfort. But Jesus says that this, this kind of wealth, the, the, the translation today was dishonest wealth, it, it's, 
I think is really what he's going for is the, the form of wealth that doesn't last. There's a kind of wealth that just won't last. It's going to run out. The, 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 the places we live, the things that we have, what we have in our bank account, it's all, it's all just for a season. But Jesus is looking beyond this life, isn't he? He's looking into life eternal. He's looking into the things that will matter beyond. What would you want them to say about you at your funeral? You know one thing I don't want them to say about me? Man, that Bailey, he sure was comfortable. He just lived a comfortable life. Everywhere he went, he was so comfortable. I don't really want people saying that about me. I want them saying something else. Like, he gave himself away. His life was bigger than himself. He didn't just live for himself. He lived for God. What do you want them to say about you? We, we look back on people who live those kind of sacrificial lives and we say, yeah, that's it. And then the next week, we're tested. Do we, do we want to make those sacrifices ourselves? It's a funny thing, isn't it? The good thing about this, my friends, is that Jesus always offers a better alternative. He doesn't just say, hey, quit serving wealth. Our God is not just a stop, don't, stop, don't, stop, don't, stop, don't, like some parent who's just telling their kid to always stop doing things. That's not what Jesus is ever about or God is about. If God ever tells you to stop something, it's because he wants you to do something else. If he tells you not to do to, to, to serve this, he's calling you to serving something greater. He says you cannot serve wealth and God. So if, if we are not to love wealth, then the calling is to love God. If we are not to serve wealth, the calling is to serve God. In the context of this passage with these Pharisees, they were entrusted, God's people, they were some of the leaders of God's people entrusted with God's blessing and God's kingdom. Well, here we are, the church. We are the people of God. We have been baptized into Jesus. And now we are entrusted with God's kingdom. We are entrusted with God's mission. Not just the pastor, not just the church staff, but the people of God. Meant to be salt and light in the world. To go out all over Lubbock County and beyond. To be the hands and feet of Christ. There are several things that could compete for living out that calling. And we all have the kind of resources at our disposal that could be that competition. But you cannot serve God and wealth. We have to choose by the grace of God, whatever that looks like in each of our lives, may we choose the better. Would you pray with me?
Lord Jesus Christ, Son of the living God. Would you open our eyes to see those places where we let the things of this world get in the way of your real calling in our lives? Would you open our eyes to see the false blessings that we have settled for, not acknowledging your true blessing and who you really are? Give us your grace, O Lord. As we come to this table today to take of your body, to drink of this juice that represents your blood, would you give us all the grace to love you and serve you first, to trust in you for our comfort, to trust in you for our status, that we would belong to you, that you would be our security. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, we pray. Amen.